0: Turn to John 14, 1, please. I want to kind of introduce what we're doing this week and next week, and then I want to pray with a specific, very specific prayer. <clears throat> John 14 is, um, just give you a little bit of context before I read this passage. It's a passage that will be familiar to you if you've been here these last few weeks. John 14, if you just kind of turn the page, 14 and 15, 16 and 17, there's lots of red. And then in 18, 19, the rest of the book, it kind of turns black and red. These four chapters here, 14, 15, 16, 17, are really in many ways kind of the last words that Jesus shared with his disciples. Now, he talked with them again after the resurrection, but these are hours before he is to be nailed to a cross. Thank you, Beth. Hours before he is to be nailed to a cross. He'll be arrested later this night. They've had the Lord's Supper. He's washed their feet. Judas has left the table. Lots of reasons for them to be troubled. they followed him for three years, and he's given them the news that, hey, this is about to be over, or it's about to change dramatically. I'm going to a place where you cannot go. And he tells them this verse here in verse 14:1, He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This message this week and next week, I feel like are possibly two of the most important sermons that I've ever had the privilege of preaching. What we're going to deal with is really the truth behind that one word, also. You believe in God, believe also in me. What Jesus is speaking to here and what he deals with in the rest of this chapter is he deals with his own godness. I feel like it's probably one of the most, this one and next Sunday will be a couple of the most important sermons I've ever, to, had, to, ever had the privilege of preaching because we're going to reckon with that truth. Without coming with any sort of preconceived um, I, needs, I need this, I need somebody to help me with my marriage, I need somebody to help me with my money, I need somebody to help me with my job, I need somebody to help me with my health. All the things that we can bring to corporate <laughs> worship, which we should bring, this is a different sort of Sunday, and so is next. It has everything to do with Jesus. seems especially appropriate to straddle Christmas with these sort of considerations, the weight of evidence for the godness of Jesus. It's easy around Christmas time to reduce him as a little bit less than God because you see him in a baby in a manger. He's cute. and We may think of him just a tad less, and all you have to do is think a tad less of him, and he's, then he's pretty easy to dismiss so we're going to reckon with the godness of Jesus. Let me deal let me just first address the skeptic, whether the skeptic is here this morning or whether the skeptic will hear the sermon afterwards. Lots of people that listen to these messages after Sunday, so even different 14 or 15 different countries we figured out dial into these sermons weekly. So to, first I want to address the skeptic. If you believe the Bible to have zero factual value, if you believe the Bible to have zero historical value, absolutely none, then you'll leave left wanting today. You'll leave wanting. You'll listen to the message online, and you probably shouldn't even bother, because I'm preaching from the Bible. I want to offer this to you, though, before you check out. If you're here or you listen to this online, There was no time in ancient history, in any ancient civilization, so thoroughly recorded on and reported on as this time. Albeit, I want to acknowledge, by biased men. Recorded and reported on, albeit by biased men. Men with agenda. Man, I'm not going to lie. John, in fact, wrote the book of John. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's an agenda, and that's a bias. But before you dismiss them as, ah, they're biased, let me offer this consideration to you, that there's no such thing as an unbiased man. Somebody told me this week that they were speaking with another person that was sharing about their grown son, who's an atheist. i said that yeah he's he's an atheist he's really science scientific which okay that's an explanation for being an atheist what she was trying to explain there is that they're they're fact driven as opposed to faith driven and i want to tell you having been in science having completed a, a graduate degree in science and physiology having been published with a thesis you do not do scientific research without a bias There's tremendous faith involved. You can't form a hypothesis without a bias and an expectation of what you're going to receive as a result. There's no such thing as an unbiased man. I think the key is to figure out who's biased along the truth. That's what I'm about. I want to find the one that's biased with the truth. So if you want to dismiss these guys and these writers and these many of them like historians, like Luke, man, what an incredible historian. Detail after detail after detail. If you want to dismiss them as biased, realize you've got to dismiss everybody, including yourself. Because you're biased against them. (laughs) That you could even miss out on hearing something. Realize there's no such thing as an unbiased man. But if you can consider as true... A few things, if you can consider that this has some historical value, some factual value, and you can believe that there was indeed a man named Jesus, and that that man named Jesus hung out with a dude named Peter, that he hung out with another dude named John, that he had a brother named James. If you can consider as factual that this Jesus made certain claims about himself, and that this Jesus was crucified, hung on a cross, If you can accept just even just those things as factual, then you'll leave today with at least some evidence for the godness of Jesus. I promise you, with just those facts. My prayer for the skeptic is twofold, and I make no apologies for this prayer for you if you're the skeptic here today or listening online. My prayer is twofold. First, that God will open the eyes of your heart to see his true story and that your bias will line up with the truth. Secondly, that I'll present this evidence, this account. I'll give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. That's a prayer for me. I will pray about that in here in just a minute. But now for the believer. <clears throat> I've dealt with the skeptic. Now for the believer. I want to warn you this is a very impractical message. This one and next week may be two of the most impractical messages I've ever preached. But the cool thing is God's not looking for practitioners. Jesus told the woman at the well, he says, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. He's not not seeking practitioners. He's seeking those who will get the truth about Jesus right and will enjoy it. (laughs) That's worship. That's the practice of faith, is worship, enjoying truth out loud. So my prayer this morning for the believer is, is that you will engage these truths about Christ and about His Godness, and that you will walk away with a more robust view of who this Jesus is and was. And that this Christmas, on Wednesday, Thursday, Christmas Eve, New Year, or Christmas Day, you may engage Him in a deeper, richer, more worshipful, more enjoying, more savoring sort of way. So let's pray for those things right now. God, first of all, this morning I want to pray for... another church here in this town. I want to pray for Steve Lawson and Grace Community Church. Lord, we want to pray for just a rich and robust time of worship this morning. I pray that even right now as they're leading worship and song and as they are preparing to engage the word, that you are about to be savored and enjoyed and marveled at, treasured, that your majesty and wonder and all those great, your glory will be on display and that a people will be arrested with those things and left, that they will leave different than they came. Lord, I pray for Steve and his family. I pray that Steve, as he's preparing to teach and preach each week, that he is being wrecked and undone, he's being disassembled and rebuilt, that he's growing downward in humility and upward in worship and wonder, that he's amazed by grace, that he's left that way to where it invades his Wednesday evening with his family, his Thursday breakfast with his wife, where it invades his shepherding time and pastoral time as he walks with people, and where it invades his sermon preparation, where it invades every single area of who he is and that you'll use him for your glory. Lord, we pray that Grace Community Church will not have seating capacity for all the people that you will bring there. Pray for great things for your glory and for your namesake in this sister church. Pray too, Lord, that you will guard them and guard us from ever having a spirit of competition, but that we will truly cheer for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this community. That your name will be renowned among the churches here in this town. Lord, Lord, as far as this people goes in these next few minutes, I pray that we will engage truth, that we can put ourselves aside and our expectations and maybe even our perceived needs, and that we will engage our greatest need of knowing you and who you are and what you've done and who and who the person of Jesus is and what he's done and his complete and total godness. Lord, I pray that you'll be savored this morning and enjoyed and worshipped. I turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) I want to share with you six things this morning. Six things this morning, five things next week. Six things I'm going to keep you in the Gospels. I'll go to a couple different places, but I want you to visually engage some passages that I would like to take you to. The first thing, and let me tell you too as we go, the six things, they grow more and more robust. The first three things, they're sort of light. I'm going to confess, they're sort of light in terms of evidence because a crazy man could do what the first three things, which you'll see in the first three things. But the next two, no crazy man could do. So just be ready. Take them in, capture them, sort of like satellites, grabbing satellites, grabbing truths, and let's see by the end of the morning where you land on the godness of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 13. We'll get here in a few months, but for now, verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples in the final hours before he goes to the cross. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Listen to what he says next. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you let that passage sort of follow the pattern of verse, verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in me, then what he's saying there is you believe or you pray to the Father, now pray also to me. He's saying, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the same, very same Jesus who taught them to pray, saying, Father, hallowed be your name, to pray in the Father's direction. And he certainly modeled it. But here in these final hours, he's kind of introduced, introducing them to a new concept. It's okay to pray to me too, because I'm God also. He instructs them to believe in God, to believe also in him, and as they pray, to pray to God the Father, but to pray also to him, I have to confess to you, this concept is very undeveloped for this Baptist. Because it's a little bit charismatic. It is. You dial up TBN or some of those other stations, man, they, all, all they're talking to is Jesus. I think it needs to be done proportionately. Most of the time, Jesus is praying to the Father. And there's very few pictures of anyone praying to Jesus. But there is one picture I'll take you to. You don't need to go there. I'll share it with you what it is it's in the book of acts chapter 7 verse 59 you may remember the story about stephen the deacon the preaching deacon who could bring it preaching a message and getting stoned for it toward the end of his sermon he says these words as he's about to breathe his last he says lord jesus receive my spirit he's praying christward So it seems as if Jesus is teaching his followers to pray also to him. I think it should be proportionally. But it seems to be okay to say, Jesus, be enjoyed this morning. But the reality is, he could have been crazy. Anybody could say, pray to me, right? I could tell you that, and you'd say, man, that dude's crazy. I'm not going to that church anymore. So it could have been a loon. Let's look at the second one. First is, he taught his followers to pray to him. Second, that he forgives sin. I'm going to share a passage with you from Jeremiah. While I'm turning here, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Let me share a passage with you from Jeremiah. Verse 31. God is speaking here. Jeremiah is recording God's message to his people. And God says, For I will forgive their iniquity. He says, the days are coming where I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What I want you to see here and recognize is that it's only God that can forgive sin. After King David sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah the Hittite killed, Nathan confronted him with the words, these words, You are the man, David. David went off later to write, Maybe that night, who knows, to write Psalm 51 where he says these words. He says, against you, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He recognizes his transgression is Godward. That he wronged God. In fact, Joseph did the same thing. When Potiphar came to Potiphar's wife was kind of hunting him down, stalking him, saying, lie with me. And he confronted her and dealt with her. And he said, listen, he said these words to her. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what sin is. It's a transgression Godward. So it makes sense that if it's God's law that's transgressed, then it's only God's place to forgive the transgressor. Now look at Luke chapter 5. Taking those truths into account, look at Luke chapter 5 verse 17. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Okay, They're listening in, these Pharisees and teachers. A few minutes later, some men, verse 18, were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And Jesus said these words. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven don't think for a moment this wasn't a big deal because look what happens next the scribes and the pharisees began to question saying who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but god alone there's gravity to him saying man your sins are forgiven but you know what a lunatic could say that a lunatic could teach people to pray to him And people might even buy into it. And a lunatic could say, Hey, man, I forgive your sins. So, so far, we looked at a couple things that could be characteristic of just a loon. Let's look at the next one. Things are going to start to get more robust. The next one, he owned up to his godness at great personal cost. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. He owned up to his godness at great personal cost. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 63, says, But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest, that's Caiaphas, said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is the trial, or one of the first trials, with the Caiaphas, the high priest. They're questioning him, who are you? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, you said it, Caiaphas. And he says, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now you need to appreciate the gravity of what he said. They're getting it. Look at how they respond. The high priest tears his robes and says, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. He's claiming godness right here. And they're saying, this dude deserves to die. And then look what they do next. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I want you to appreciate the gravity that he is claiming godness at great personal cost. I just want to own up to something. If I'm going to claim something that's not true, that I'm just making up, about the time people start slapping me in the face, I think at that point I'm going to say, okay, it was just a joke. <laughs> I was just kidding. Okay, I'm not God for real. And they start spitting on him. And they pluck out his beard. And the scourging that I'm about to s- describe to you, I'm just going to say at some point, you're going to say, if it's not true, I'm just kidding. I'm finishing a book right now. It's called The Vintage Jesus. It's a good read. It's a brutal read. It's not all like this, but I want to share a few thoughts with you. Just a couple of pages on crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 500 B.C., perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus and not outlawed until the time of Emperor Constantine, who ruled Rome in the 4th century A.D. In the days of Jesus, crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous criminals. Even the worst Romans were beheaded rather than crucified. The Jews also considered crucifixion the most horrific mode of death. As Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not even speak of the cross because it, because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. The pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating. Excruciating literally means from The cross. A crucified person could hang on a cross for days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their body. It was not uncommon for those being crucified to slump on the cross in an effort to empty their lungs of air and thereby hasten their their own deaths. To ensure maximum suffering, scourging preceded crucifixion. Scourging itself was such a painful event that many people died from it without even making it to their cross. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head to expose his back and legs to an executioner's whip called a cat of nine tails. The whip was a series of long leather straps. At the end of some of the straps were heavy balls of metal intended to tenderize the body of a victim like a chef tenderizes a steak by beating it. Some of the straps had hooks made of either metal or bone that would have sunk deeply into the shoulders, back, and buttocks, and legs of the victim. And once the hooks had sunk deeply into the tenderized flesh, the executioner would rip the skin, muscle, tendons, and even bones off the victim as he shouted in agony, shook violently, and bled heavily. I'm just kidding. Please don't hit me again. Please don't hit me with that thing again. It's just a joke. Jesus then had a crown of lengthy thorns pressed into his head as onlookers mocked him as king of the Jews. With that, blood began to flow down Jesus' face, causing his hair and beard to be bloodied and matted mess, and his eyes to burn as he strained to see through his own sweat and blood. Jesus was then forced to carry his roughly hewn wooden crossbar, perhaps 100 pounds, on his bare, traumatized, bloodied back and shoulders to the place of his own crucifixion. The cross was likely already covered with the blood of other men. Timber was so expensive, the crosses were recycled, so Jesus' blood mixed with the layers of blood from countless other men who had walked the same path before him. Despite his young age and good health, Jesus was so physically devastated from his sleepless night, miles of walking, severe beating, and scourging that he collapsed under the weight of the cross, unable to carry it alone. A man named Simon of Cyrene was appointed to carry Jesus' cross. Upon arriving at his place of crucifixion, they pulled Jesus' beard out, an act of ultimate disrespect in ancient cultures. They spat on him. They mocked him in front of his friends and family. Jesus, the carpenter, who had driven many nails into wood wood with his own hands, then had five to seven inch rough metal spikes driven into the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body in his hands and feet. Jesus was nailed to his wooden cross. Then he was lifted up, and his cross dropped into a prepared hole, causing his body to shake violently on the spikes. In further mockery, a sign was posted above Jesus that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. At this point during a crucifixion, the victims labored to breathe as their body went into shock. Naked and embarrassed, the victims would often use their remaining strength to seek revenge on the crowd of mockers who had gathered to jeer at them. They would curse at their tormentors while while urinating on them and spitting on them. Some victims would be so overwhelmed with pain that they would become incontinent, and a pool of sweat, blood, urine, and feces would gather at the base of their cross. Jesus' crucifixion must have been a grotesque scene hundreds of years in advance. The prophet Isaiah saw it this way He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. All it would take is a slap for me. I'm just kidding. He owned it, man, owned it. Great, terrible, personal cost. He did not recant. But he could have been crazy, right? Crazy man could do that. Maybe. Let's look at the next two truths. He claimed sinlessness. Turn to John chapter 8. Man, things are about to get real fat, rich, robust. There's chest hair on these next two truths. I I mean, I want to be gentle and respectful for the skeptic, but I'm just saying, please engage this. Believers, please engage these next two truths. John chapter 8, verse 46. Jesus said these words. He says, which of you convicts me of sin if I tell you the truth why do you not believe me while that verse just flows this one long sentence i just can't help but imagine and wonder that after he said which of you convicts me of sin that he didn't pause and look around he's standing before a bunch of unbelieving jews he says which of you convicts me of sin crickets you hear them crickets Hebrews chapter four verse 15 says, "We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as "We are yet without sin." I said, "Which of you convicts me of sin? Listen to these accounts, the machine gun of eyewitnesses to this claim. From Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This dude walked with him for three years. He committed no sin, nor was deceit in his mouth. It takes about three hours, maybe three minutes, for somebody to hang out with me before they go, that dude's a sinner. <laughs> three years. How about John? John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's speaking about all mankind. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, a couple chapters later in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him now, there is no sin. Peter didn't see it. John didn't see it. Crickets. Anybody got anything against him? Crickets. How about James? Now, James was his brother. (laughs) Now, we might be able to kind of put on a show for friends and, you know, acquaintances, but our family really knows us, don't they? That's why, man, if one of my brothers shows up and they're visiting and they're going to be here on a Sunday, I'm like, oh, man, do I have to preach? Because I'm like totally DQ'd in front of family. Reality is anybody's DQ'd in front of any of you. But family knows you. his own brother, James, said this about him. He said, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He's dealing to unrepentant rich people. And he says, he does not resist you. You have murdered the righteous person. That the is important. It's called a definite article. He is identifying the righteous person as his very own brother. Spent 30-something years with him. He says, oh man, he was the righteous person. How about Paul? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty-one. He says, "For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God." Him who knew no sin. I hear somebody out of left field. How about Judas? Consider this from Matthew chapter 27. It says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That's another dude walked with him for three years. And what did he go, go off and do? Then he threw the money down whoosh, in the temple, and he runs off and hangs himself conviction, because this Jesus was innocent. He spent three years with him. Here's another curveball, but I want you to see these guys. Turn to Luke chapter 23. There are three testimonies right here in just Luke chapter 23, and I want you to see all three of them. Remember, he claimed sinlessness. Here's a testimony from an unlikely character, a guy named Pilate. Verse 23, excuse me, verse 22 of chapter 23, he says, A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Look over to chapter 39, I mean, excuse me, verse 39 of the same chapter. This is from another unlikely character, a criminal. Remember, there's two criminals hanging on the cross, one on either side of Jesus. It says, One of the criminals who hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we indeed justly, in other words, are being crucified, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, this one between us, has done nothing wrong. Apparently, the cross is a place where your true color is going to come out as you're urinating on everybody and spitting on them, as you're dying naked in front of them. But this Jesus did it differently. And these two guys, one not recognizing, one recognizing, saying, something's different here. This guy has done nothing wrong. Here's one more testimony in the same chapter, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. That's 3, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the... Excuse me. Sixth hour is high noon. Ninth hour is 3, 8, 3 p.m. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion, a Roman soldier saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. A place where your true colors are going to come out. A place where you're dying naked in front of all your neighbors and your friends. You're mocked by everybody you've ever known. People that just a week earlier were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting later, give us Barabbas. And now they're mocking him on his cross. And he's dying so remarkably that a Roman soldier is standing before him worshiping God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. I've never seen anything like the way this man died. I've seen millions of people, not millions, hundreds of people crucified as a Roman soldier. Maybe I was in charge of the crew that nailed the nails, that slapped him, that spit on him, that mocked him, that put a purple robe on him, put a crown of thorns on him, that nailed him to the cross. And I'm sitting here at the the ninth hour when he's breathing his last, going, I've never seen anything anything like this while it's dark. Anybody got anything against him? Crickets. He claims sinlessness, and it was verified by everyone who came in contact with him. I don't know about you, man, but this adds some weight to the first three. <laughs> He's teaching people to pray to him. He's forgiven sins. What was the other one? Yeah, he owned his Godness at great personal cost. Can't forget that. Man, this adds weight. It adds weight to those things. Was he just a sinless crazy man or was he sinless perfection, fully man and fully God, worthy of worship and adoration? Here's the next one. He performed miracles proving his power. Since you're in Luke, let me just take you on a little two-second exercise. Turn back to Luke chapter 4. I'm not even going to read Scripture. I just want to show you the headings. Your headings might be a little bit different in your Bible, but the headings in my Bible, in the ESV, starting on page 861 where it's Luke chapter 6, actually starting on page page 4, it says, Jesus heals a man with an unclean demon. The next page, Jesus cleanses a leper. Jesus heals a paralytic. The next page, he heals a man with a withered hand. The next page, Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Jesus raises a widow's son. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. Jesus feeds 5,000. He heals a boy with an unclean spirit. Just the headings, man, just look at them. He made these claims. He went to the cross, sticking to those claims. He claimed sinlessness. And a bunch of people said, sure enough was. And then here he's displaying his power. He fed thousands with a few loaves and fishes. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. He gave working legs to the lame. He raised the dead. He turned water to wine. He calmed the wind and waves with a spoken word. He demonstrated his godness with power. Real, legit. Power. I was getting breakfast for the boys the other morning. Evan hadn't come down yet. Daniel was the first one down. I'm in the kitchen. Daniel was a little bit quiet, you know. He's usually a little happy lad coming down, bebopping, you know. But he's a little bit quiet, so I thought I'd kind of cheer him up a little bit. So I was acting like a magician while I was getting his food together. I'm pulling stuff out of the fridge. Voila! Out of the cupboard. Abracadabra! I'm pouring juice, really being dramatic and everything, and Daniel's just kind of looking at me, still kind of, he's not even smiling, I'm working hard, man, he says, that's not magic, that's not real magic, I was like, okay, well, maybe not, okay, Luke, what do you want, I'm getting Luke's food together, and Luke is into this fried egg thing, so I'm frying up an egg for him on the stove, there's a kind of ambient noise thing, you know, where you just hear things, but you don't really connect to them. Daniel's singing as he's eating his Cheerios. That's what, that's what his request was easy. He's eating his Cheerios, and I hear kind of this ambient noise of him singing. And then I tuned into what he was saying. And he was singing a little song that really, I don't even know what the tune was. It was something like, God and Jesus can do magic. God and Jesus can do magic. He's singing this over and over again. And I connected to it. I said, whoa, wait a minute. What did he just say? And when I realized what he said, I said, Daniel, what did you just say? He said, well, God and Jesus, now they can do magic. I mean, what he's thinking is, he's thinking, dude, you don't have game. But God and Jesus, now they've got game. They can do some pretty amazing things. And I stopped him. I said, Daniel, now first of all, you're separating God and Jesus. Jesus is God. There's, let's say, God the Father and God the Son. And let's deal with your thoughts that they do magic. Now, I said, Daniel, magic is really smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand and sh- you know, shadow and shift and flare. That Hey, look at my hand over here while I'm doing this with my other hand. Well, you're given the illusion of power. You're given the illusion of being able to do things. And I want you to know, Daniel, that God the Father and God the Son are actually powerful. There's no smoke. There's no mirrors. There's no abracadabra, hocus-pocus. There's none of that. I mean, he's just walking on the waves, man. High step in the high seas. He's saying, get up, dead person. Come forth. And man, they're vacating tombs. Thankfully, he called him by name. Otherwise, the whole whole graveyard would have emptied he's not a magician man he is power so i asked him i said daniel are god and jesus magicians he said no sir and i said to myself in my little quiet place in my heart i said lord thank you for a teachable moment thank you for that reality that god you are not a magician just smoke and mirrors the illusion of power but you are god indeed legit that you are power indeed jesus Jesus showed that he owns the creation that he made. All the laws that we're bound to, like gravity, like time, like space, like biology, like meteorology, like physiology, he owns them. They bow to him. And the best miracle of all? Was that he left an especially sealed and guarded tomb quite vacant, and his resurrected life was witnessed by hundreds. He left grave clothes lying, and he was touched by Thomas. He left Romans bewildered and Jews frustrated. The ones who crucified him, he left them upset while he ate fish breakfast with his disciples on the seashore. It's the ultimate display of power. Many of those witnesses who witnessed his death went on to be crucified, disemboweled, beheaded, martyred in some way, or lost everything. You think of some way they say, it's just a joke. He didn't really rise. He didn't really do all those things. But they submitted to the brutality. The reality is, nobody will die for a magician. The last thing we'll engage this morning is that he came down from heaven. Turn to John chapter 6. He came down from heaven. I did a study on things that came down from heaven. I found manna, I found quail. You may remember the story of Jews moving through the desert, through the wilderness. I found other accounts where Elijah called down fire from heaven, where fire came down from heaven and consumed Solomon's sacrifice when he dedicated the temple. The psalmist wrote of God looking down from heaven. Isaiah wrote of rain and snow coming down from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a holy one that came down from heaven. And Peter had a vision of a sheet that came down from heaven with all sorts of goodies on it. Pork. (laughs) Thank goodness. What I found for just from that little study is it looks like judgment and sustenance and messages, important messages, come down from heaven. But I only found one account of a man who came down from heaven, and that's our Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 33, he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The listeners appreciated the gravity of what he was saying. Look in verse 41. They're frustrated at what they're hearing. It says they grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They weren't frustrated about him saying, I'm bread. They're frustrated about where he's saying he's coming from. Because what do they say next? He says, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph whose father and mother we know? Isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? How does he say, I've come down from heaven? And then in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He says, basically, he's saying, I am like manna that doesn't spoil. I'm like manna for hungry, hungry travelers. And when you eat it, you will not die. And you need to appreciate what he's saying when he's saying, I'm coming down from heaven, that that can only be achieved by someone who already was. I've held enough babies to know that babies are almost heavenly. And you can even say, man, it's just heavenly, especially like a C section baby. Golly. No combat. I mean, you just, voila. Beautiful, man. But I got news for you they didn't come from heaven. They are produced and delivered right here on earth. But this Jesus already was. There was never a time when he was not. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, because he already was. When the beginning came, guess what? He already was. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he identifies himself as the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. It's in red letters, go look at it. He's talking about himself. So when you celebrate Christ's birth this year, don't make the mistake of thinking that's when and where he began, for he already was. Those five, six truths this morning as he taught his followers to pray to him. He forgave sin. He owned up to his godness at great, great personal cost. He claimed sinlessness. He performed miracles proving his power and he came down from heaven. Make no mistake as you think on our Jesus this season know that you are thinking on God the Son, fully man and fully God. He's not simply a man. He's not a philosopher or sage. If you reduce him to that, you had not listened to what he's saying. He's not just a charismatic enigma. He's not a lunatic. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. As you think on Him and enjoy these truths, I want you to realize what you're doing is you're doing what's called worship. Remember, that's what God's seeking, is worshipers, who just enjoy these realities. If it makes you smile, if it invades Tuesday morning at breakfast, Wednesday night, maybe as you sit with your family on Christmas Eve, as it invades Thursday morning, realize what you're doing. That's what's called worship. And that's who God's looking for is those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let me pray. Lord, I just pray for purchase. I pray that these incredible realities about our Jesus, these incredible truths about our Jesus, will just invade everything that we are, everything that we believe, that they will just define how we see life. They will, they will shape how we read our Bibles. They will shape how we engage the church. They will shape, shape how we engage our family and friends and neighbors. I pray that it will just invade everything that we are, this godness of Jesus. I pray that you will forgive any of us that have a lower view of Jesus than fully God. Lord, that we will repent and believe on him fully as the God-man. Lord, we are amazed that in the fullness of time that you broke forth into creation and took on flesh. We're amazed at how low grace reached. Lord, I pray that you'll find us worshiping in response. We're praying these things in the mighty, incredible, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing.